I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Before we get started today, I wanted to do a quick little check-in on a platform company recently IPO'd called Poshmark. You know, we covered Poshmark when they when they first IPO'd uh, back, let's see, right in, in kind of mid-January. We can roll the tape back. Let's roll the tape back. We talked about you know, uh, their value, which was at a hundred dollars a share, very high. We thought, um, particularly relative to other competitors, uh, in Europe, like, uh, Vestier or, uh, Vinted, or, um, you got thread up here in the United States and basically said, you know, at a hundred dollars, this seems very expensive. Well, what has happened since they are at about $40 a share. This makes a lot more sense given the growth that they've seen, their GMV, their margins, uh, basically everything that we break down you know, a couple months ago. And yep, called it right. Next topic is how would I break down, how would I rank FAMGA and why? Here are the abridged notes. Number one spot is Amazon. Why? Because Andy Jassy is a very strong, very kind of entrepreneurial type leader. He's the guy that really started AWS and spun it out of Amazon, um, you know, over 15 years ago now. And when you look at Amazon's conglomerate status and all the different platform bets that they have beyond just their consumer-facing marketplace, I think they easily have the most aggressive growth prospects ahead of them, both in their core monopolies like Amazon Marketplace and AWS, but also in the up-and-coming business units that they have gotten themselves into, ranging from Twitch to Amazon Business and others. So Amazon takes the top spot. Then after that would be Microsoft. Similarly, very strong leader in Satya. He's done a very good job embracing and driving new platform businesses, making Microsoft the number two cloud player behind Amazon. Microsoft has a number of interesting growth bets. Also buying LinkedIn is no stranger to taking kind of measured risks through M&A to get into new platform businesses. So I really like their kind of conglomerate positioning. Um, and notice I'm not really talking much about regulation, which I'm going to get to at the end of this recap, about why regulation isn't really much a part of my consideration for how to rank these the FAMGA here. Facebook is number three. Clearly a very strong leader in Zuckerberg. Growth prospects, you know, still a little bit questionable, questionable not as strong as Amazon, definitely little bit, I'd say, behind Microsoft in terms of where I can see the growth coming from them in terms of new business models, right? They've obviously got Instagram. They, they bought customer that, you know, they're doing the VR thing. But to me, the empire, the conglomerates that they have, the kind of different platform business units and what, what's that next up and coming rising star, uh, multi-billion dollar platform business for Insta, I mean, for Facebook, particularly when some of their M&A capability is, is under a spotlight and probably being restricted. Uh, you know, that's why I'd put them in the third slot, not say the second slot. Then come Apple and Google. And basically, these are the last two because they lack in both areas, leadership and growth. They both have weak leaders, Tim Cook and Sundar, and their growth prospects are also somewhat muted. Apple, what's the next thing Apple's trying to do? like services and sell Apple TV plus subscriptions. That's not really moving the needle. 
iPhone's great, but what else are you doing, Apple? I don't see much. That said, they have really good positioning to to really be an advocate for privacy because they don't have any kind of advertising type business. So I think they might be able to claw some margin or some some profit out of that. And that positioning is very strong differentiator against Google, who's their other big uh, smartphone rival. Tim Cook, also not a very innovative, not a very entrepreneurial leader. He was the COO. He's not really doing it for me on the leadership chart. Google is at the last rank. And this was honestly an easy decision. Sundar is beyond weak. Look at the guy testify. It's miserable. It's cringeworthy. Um, Look at him bluff to leave Australia and have his bluff called and then capitulate. Look at him allow a union to exist inside of Google. On top of that, where is Google? What is Google really innovating on? Well, you know, where are they really driving forward and forging new territory? You don't see it. You know, it's really lackluster. Um, and the, some of the M&A they've been doing hasn't been really panning out very well. Um, you know, their, their internal initiatives out of Google X, they just burn a lot of money. Google Cloud's supposed to be their big, you know, crown jewel, which is hemorrhaging billions of dollars a year and is third place in a winner-take-all market called the cloud, not where you want to be. Here's the reason why I did not really cover um, regulation in that breakdown. And the reason why is because um, in the short to midterm, I don't really see it being much of a factor. We cover regulation all the time on the show. We cover what the EU is doing, what Poland is doing, what Australia is doing, what the U.S. is trying to do and failing at. Um, And we recently had. Uh, Lena Khan be nominated to uh, head up the FTC. And if you don't know who Lena Khan is, she's an economist that, you know, a number of years ago came out with um, her assessment of, you know, big tech and, and antitrust and, you know, was very hard on big tech and said that, you know, corrective action needs to be taken, agrees that they are monopolies. Her big, you know, deep dive article um, or or brief, uh, which she published, I read through the thing. It was, it was easily over seventy pages. Um, I think I'm, I actually covered it on the show. Basically, says that antitrust precedent, right? Um, the the laws that are in place need to be changed to appropriately deal with the tech monopolies. Okay, so she's anti-tech monopoly. That's good. But she says that there needs to be legislative change. Laws need to be changed in order for the FTC to do its job. That's not good. She's coming into power, assuming she gets nominated. Under the auspices that she is handicapped and really can't do much. That's not a good... (laughs) <laughs> you know, a good uh, positioning doesn't mean that she shouldn't be trying to advocate for uh, legislative change and laws that can be stricter on, let's say, tech monopolies engaging in M&A. Right? That's a common thing that they talk about. Oh, well, we should put the onus on the tech monopoly to prove to the P- Department of Justice that they aren't violating antitrust rules. Right. Right now, it's the other way around. If a tech monopoly buys, say, a, a unicorn company, 
the onus of burden is on the Department of Justice to prove that this acquisition is bad and anti-competitive, right? What they want to do, this is one of a few things, they would want to basically reverse that, put the onus on the tech monopoly to prove that the acquisition is not anti-competitive, right? So things like that, which are good. But the point is here, and the point we've been making on the show for years is, the precedent exists to bring a successful lawsuit against tech monopolies. And I'm, I've got some examples here, which I'm going to get into. Just so you know, Every week, there's more examples. And the point is that tech monopolies, when at scale, they take advantage of producers, not consumers. If you read the book and you understand how platform business models work, platform businesses have two customers, a consumer, yeah, but then the producer, the supplier of value, right? Platform businesses are asset light, have network effects on the demand and the supply side, not Netflix. Sellers on Amazon, creators on YouTube, they are the producers. They are the creators of that inventory. And the platform is facilitating the exchange of that inventory. When the platform gets to monopoly scale and they need to show growth and margin growth, who do they take advantage of first? It's not the consumer, it's the producer. And the whole thesis that we've talked about on the show that now, you know, some people in the industry are picking up on the, the Miss Vestager over at the EU is picking up on it. Uh, Poland and Australia have picked up on it. It's actually worked pretty well for them, right? You got to protect the producer. If you want to handicap the tech monopoly, you need to protect the producer because that is a customer to the tech monopoly. Who does Amazon make money off of when you buy a product from a third-party seller? They actually make money from the third-party seller. The third-party seller is paying, say, you know, 10 to 20% commission to Amazon. The seller is a customer of Amazon, just like the creator is a customer of YouTube, right? The creator is the one that has a revenue, an ad revenue share with YouTube, right? Who is creating value? Who is essentially paying these companies? It's actually the producers. So when you think about producers as customers, then all, and why that's important is because then all the past, whatever, 20, 30, 40 years of antitrust legal precedent fits. Because what antitrust legal precedent says is when you have a monopoly, you got 60, 70% market share, which is easy to prove for any of these companies. When you have a monopoly, if they can be shown to take advantage of their customer, in this case, producers, well, then that's antitrust. Uh, that's an antitrust violation that's anti-competitive. And now you can take action to correct that behavior. Um, but no one has really, in the United States, tried to thread that needle. We've seen it in the EU. Now we've actually seen it in Australia. Lena Khan has not ran on a position that says the antitrust precedent fits. All you need to do is qualify a producer as a customer, right? It's very much so saying, hey, tech monopolies are bad. We need to change the laws so I can go after the tech monopolies. Why that's an issue is, is this thing called regulatory capture. What is regulatory capture? Well, here you go. Regulatory capture is an economic theory that says regulatory agencies may come to be dominated by the industries or interests they are charged with regulating. The, the result is that an agency charged with acting in the public interest instead acts in ways that benefit incumbent firms in the industry it is supposed to be regulating. And I think, you know, what everyone needs to recognize is you got to take a big step back. The United States is corrupt. Okay. 
We've got corruption oozing out of our pores. Anywhere you want to look, Department of Justice, Congress, any branch of the government, corruption. Why would we place more trust into Congress to pass laws that is then going to magically enable Lena Khan and the FTC to take action? I certainly wouldn't place my trust in Congress. Look at who donates to all of the congressmen, all the politicians. You know, you just got to follow the money. China's figured this out. I mean, China, way more corrupt, way more issues than the United States, but the United States is a corrupt gang. We've got to recognize that. We can't just sit here and act like, you know, we're holier than thou. We've got corruption. The harder that you make this battle, if you want to correct and rein in the tech monopolies, you know, the more uh, things that need to fall into place, if we want to take real action on, on reining in the power that the tech monopolies have, right? So if we're kicking the can down the road to say, well, Congress needs to act before we, the regulatory agency, can act, what do you think is going to happen, right? It's not going to happen anytime soon, even if it does happen. It's not going to happen into the short to midterm. For Congress to act, for all these politicians who all, you know, there's lobbyists, they get paid. You know, let's just be honest, okay? This isn't a partisan thing. If you're a politician and you're in there for years or decades, how do you make millions and millions of dollars? Riddle me that. It just doesn't make sense, does it? You have a salary of like a couple hundred thousand dollars, even though insider trading is legalized for you. How do you get millions and some, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars in net worth? It just, it just doesn't add up, does it? There's funny business going on. It's been going on for decades. So my point here is that while it, I wish Lena Khan the best and I wish her to be successful, absolutely, because the tech monopolies are too powerful and they need to be reined in literally wrote a book about it. I just wouldn't start counting my chips yet, especially with her positioning that Congress needs to act for her to be effective. That's not uh, a winning strategy when you have the level of corruption that we have literally everywhere. So, yeah, interesting news. Not losing much sleep over it. Now, to that point, we've got a lot of corruption. We've got a lot of corruption. China, U.S., definitely not even close on the same playing fields, right? Despite all of our corruption and all of our issues, U.S. still has almost an, an infinite amount more level of freedom than China. Why do I bring that up? Well, something we've talked also a, a lot about on the show is the U.S. tech Monopoly's reticence to work with the Department of Defense. And you know, I asked Mike Hayes about this. We had him on the show, former Navy SEAL, um, you know, served the, our, in our military for decades. He didn't want to take a position on it. I thought that was, you know, a little disheartening that. You, you aren't seeing more of the military community 
has joined the tech industry speak out that that tech monopolies clear hesitation, reticence, unwillingness to work with the Department of Defense is a big problem. The peer of Alex Karp, Alex Karp, we've covered him before on the show. He is the um, CEO of Palantir. Palantir works with, I mean, their biggest customer is the U.S. government. But this guy, you know, tells it how it is, has touched on this a little bit before, but now he touches on it a lot more than he has in the past. The real problem on how America does in that context also comes down to the unwillingness uh, from my myopic perch, totally impossible to understand unwillingness of a number of tech uh, companies and engineers to support the U.S. government. Now, I don't think everything the U.S. government does is right. I don't agree with a lot of things. I'm a citizen, and like many people, I'm sure everyone listening, we have our agreements and disagreements. But um, the, 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 the odd reality that many in Silicon Valley are not willing to support the U.S. government in military context is something that should be a source of great uh, discussion. And, you know, I, for one, always want to hear, well, if that's the case, how do you justify the fact that you're building your company in the U.S. and driving on our highways? And, and getting protection from countries that are unhappy with your, their, their encroachment on their sovereignty simply because they don't want to offend the U.S. government and our taxpayers. So that, that is a really big issue in America uh, that, you know, many of our software elites have a very different view on how you should support the country that has supported us than, say, we do at Palantir and I do personally. Why do you think that is? I mean, m- please call out some company names if you want to, but e- even if you don't, well, what is the motivation not to say? There's a long answer. I think the short answer is that they, some of them just don't have the sense God gave a goat. Um, and they confuse having a high IQ with being sensible. But in any case, the longer answer would be um, something like, um, I, I think there's just a, just a not an understanding of the historical reality of tech. We get away, in, in those of us who are entrepreneurs, for looking weird and living our own lives and, and not being particularly conformist because people in America see that we're creating value for them. The Silicon Valley of the, of the first generation was building things that Americans understood would help them. If you're sitting on your perch in Silicon Valley and you're only creating value for yourself, monetizing the natural resources of, other, of your fellow Americans and others in the form of monetizing their data and providing no value to them, except for disrupting the businesses that people work at, you're going to find that your level of trust, it goes re- really down really far quickly. And, you, and I don't think this is something you can kind of IQ your way out of, which is, I think, essentially one of the problems in Silicon Valley. They just think that they're so smart that they can smart their way out of this. And but, you know, it's just so obvious. I think the other thing which he doesn't really touch on is weak leadership. Thing I was touching on at the top of the show, this stuff starts at the top. Okay. The, the, one of the main companies that he's talking about, he doesn't name here, the CNBC guy really begs him to name a company because I want to stir the controversy. But the main company he's alluding to is Google. Um, so who I specifically asked Mike Hayes about Google um, not wanting to deploy its um, AI systems to, you know, uh, get involved in like weapons targeting programs. Uh, with the DOD, you know, so let's say it could be like image recognition. It could be, you know, image recognition plus like 
a hundred, hundred other data points or more. And then you need a brain, right? That's going to say, okay, is this enemy? Is this friend? Target that enemy, hack that enemy, et cetera. Google didn't want to participate in that program and others. Um, but it, at the same time, it came out that in parallel to that, Google was talking with the Chinese government and was actually running a kind of stealth like prototype program to launch, guess what? A search engine in China. Allegedly, they have scuttled the Chinese project, probably because that was leaked and didn't really make them look very good. But irrespective of doing the thing in China or not, why would you allow your employees who come from all over the world, by the way, uh, Google has hundreds of thousands of employees. They're not all American citizens. Rebel and say, no, Google, we don't want you to make money from the U.S. government. U.S. government wasn't, um, you know, doing what, whatever that, what is that, like uh, the, the Defense Act or whatever it is, all right? They weren't forcing Google to give them their technology. They were paying them. So we're going to turn down money and we're not going to help the U.S. government. Now, U.S. government's not perfect. That's what Alex Karp is saying. There's a lot of issues with our government, a lot of issues with our government. I frankly, you know, barely trust our government. But still, <laughs> despite all that, would I take our government and our military over the Chinese communist government and their military? Hmm, let me think about that one for all of about zero seconds. So that's what Carp is getting at. He kind of says, oh, well, they got a bunch of high IQs. They got a bunch of fancy explanations. They got a bunch of really smart people over there. They're talking about what's wrong and this and that and why we shouldn't work with the U.S. government. Basically, what he's saying is they don't live in reality. And I agree with him. And I think this stuff isn't that complicated. Everyone wants to make it more complicated than it is. Love this guy. Uh... You know, he's like a mad scientist, um, but, you know, at least he's a patriot and, uh, and tells it how it is. Let's compare him to another guy, um, Kevin Mayer, the former Disney executive who left when he did not get the promotion to CEO of Disney, which at the time I said was a mistake. At the time I actually rolled the tape, Kirk, and at the time I also said, this guy's probably going to leave, which he did end up leaving. Um, this was the guy who negotiated the like, uh, you know, Lucasfilm acquisition, Star Wars, the Marvel deal. This was the guy who led Disney Plus, the creation of Disney Plus. Kevin is, you know, a sharp cookie, a really strong digital executive uh, in the media world, and Disney passed up on him for the CEO job. So he was recently interviewed in CNBC and he does talk about, you know, did he think that he was going to be CEO? He says here, did you think you were going to be the next Disney CEO? He said, well, I was hoping I would be. I'm not sure. Hope and expectations are the same. Clearly, uh, it's a nice job, CEO of Disney. He talks more about how there was a kind of um, a dearth of uh, of executives, you know, who who could have been considered for the job that he was being tested uh you know as as like a trial run for what the job would entail uh, i'm not sure what i could have done there to prove myself more than i did what he's referring to is i think that bob left earlier than expected not bob 
Chapek, the, the current CEO, but Bob Iger, the outgoing CEO. So Bob Iger did kind of leave without much notice. It actually surprised Kevin here. So they asked him here, that whole announcement seemed really rushed. He said, I didn't know what was coming at all. This guy's on the executive team. This guy doesn't even know. Um, look, my interpretation interpretation of it is that Bob Iger wanted to focus more on the creative side of things. And it, it escalated sort of quickly. And then the board needed to make a decision. And they chose Bob Chapek. Interesting. So then what happened? We had uh, Kevin go to TikTok. And they talk about that here. And then ultimately, Kevin was COO or CEO of TikTok, CEO of ByteDance. ByteDance is the Chinese platform conglomerate uh, that, that owns a bunch of other content platforms in China and elsewhere. And then TikTok, they actually acquired Musical.ly a few years ago for roughly a billion dollars and then turned that into TikTok. He speaks very positively about them. TikTok is an incredible product and ByteDance is an incredible company. The magic sauce is in their artificial intelligence coupled with machine learning. ByteDance is a juggernaut. The management at the top is very capable. Zhang, the founder, is an extraordinarily capable guy with a great team. I think they can be a public company. I would have loved to be there with them. And I think this is the problem, right? All these Chinese tech monopolies are co-opted by the CCP, by the Chinese government, by President Xi. All the data, all these tens of millions of videos, where do you think they're going? They're all being piped into the CCP and the Chinese government. And not once does Kevin talk about that. Not once. And talking about what the Trump administration did and why they came. Does he say, yeah, you know, there was actually, um, uh, you know, as I got in there, as I saw what was going on inside of ByteDance, you know, I actually got a little uncomfortable with what I saw or what kind of access the Chinese government had or, you know, how things were run. No, none of that. ByteDance is great. There's no problems there. Tens of millions of videos every day. Yeah, no, it's okay. Everything's good. No privacy issues. No national security issues. Yeah, would have loved to stick around. What's wrong with these people? Okay. We got to recognize what's going on here. And China's not only a formidable competitor. Honestly, China's beaten us. China has accelerated the corruption that we see in throughout the United States. They are like the shadow puppeteer and you got to give them credit. They're so smart. They've really, I mean, they've outdone us in so many ways, even, even, and I knew it was coming and we've talked about it on the show, but they have just, they've done it so much faster than even I thought was going to happen. And yet still, you still get these kinds of guys, these you know, top level executives. Now, Disney had done stuff in China all the time, but no one is willing to actually come out amongst this kind of corporate crowd and, and actually say like, you know, there's issues that ByteDance, you know, Kevin talks about 
like ByteDance being able to go public on the U.S. exchanges and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it, it is it's just magical how um, everyone wants to just turn a blind eye and not talk about the fundamental issues of what's going on. If you want to do business in China, if uh, you want to actually work at a Chinese owned or ran company, just Oh, everything's good. Everything's hunky-dory. So anyway, you know, what do I think about? I actually think Kevin is weak. And specifically why he shows his weakness is how he handled his departure from ByteDance. I mean, this is a joke. He left prematurely, right? Uh, ByteDance and TikTok are still operating. All the um, threatened breakup and, and, and divestiture of TikTok to a U.S.-owned company. None of that ever panned out. Cepheus review, all this. He left prematurely. He thought that that was going to happen. And then, well, and then he says, oh, well, the Financial Times leaked the story and I was about to announce my departure. And then the Financial Times story came out. So I just decided to leave. This guy just continues to disappoint. Um, maybe that's what the Disney board saw is that the guy is, you know, no backbone. He doesn't have a heavy hand when you got to make the tough decision. You know, he, he withers. That's certainly how he handled this departure from TikTok. And even his explanation of it is, does not help his story out. Uh, yeah, just very bizarre. If you read through this thing, now he's doing some other stuff at DAZN, which we've talked about, which is a boxing streaming company. And guy just seems kind of terribly unimpressive. Very smart guy, but is he a strong leader? Is he the kind of leader that um, when your company and your employees say, yeah, we, we shouldn't be working with the, the U.S. Department of Defense on their weapons targeting systems, but, but yeah, a stealth search engine in China? Oh, oh okay. Um, what's he going to do? Probably going to do what Sundar did, capitulate. You know, when you're bluffing to leave Australia, and then Australia calls your bluff, what do you do? You come to the table. It's what Sundar did. It's probably what Kevin would do. I don't know about Bob Chappick, but to me, at the end of the day, it's really about the leadership. It's really, you know, all this stuff is top down. So I want to give credit to Alex Karp, who's actually coming out, calling it how it is, recognizing the threat that is China. This is a real threat. Our government is basically paralyzed. They've helped corrupt it and others. But uh, yeah, there's not really too much, I'd say, silver lining to this story and, and how we're actually going to get ourselves out of this situation where my next guest who's going to come on the show next week uh, is a guy named General Spaulding, wrote a book called Stealth War, all about what's going on with China. And we're going to dig into this. And oh boy, um, the reckoning isn't coming. It's here, gang. We're in it. And I don't know how much it would be me going toe-to-toe -to -toe with China or my kids going having to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with China, but it's just not a pretty picture. That's Kevin Mayer. Guy has no regrets. That's how he finishes it. No regrets. Eh, I wouldn't do anything differently. On that note, China knows what's going on. Look at this. On the China note, China to restrict Tesla use. 
by military and state employees. What was the reason why everyone got into a tizzy over TikTok? The same deal. Hey, the U.S. Navy. Hey, all these sailors are using TikTok. TikTok gets all the data. The Chinese government sees all that. And then they can figure out, oh, look, there's a destroyer in the ocean because I see all these people on TikTok in the middle of the ocean over here. China restricting Tesla's use by military and state employees. People familiar with the efforts cite concerns Tesla cars could be source of national security leaks. The move follows a government security review of the electric vehicle maker's products. Tesla's, Tesla vehicles' cameras can record images constantly and obtain data including when, how, and where the vehicles are being used, as well as the contact list of mobile phones synced to them. Beijing is concerned that some data could be sent back to the U.S., the people said. Move appears to mirror U.S. restrictions on communications equipment made by Chinese companies, including Huawei. And, you know, it's, it's very similar to the reason why TikTok got into a lot of trouble and, and why the sale of Grindr uh, to a Chinese private equity firm was, was blocked and rolled back by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. China's a threat, a threat in many ways. You ask China, they're at war with the United States. It may not be kinetic. It may not be military war. But we're in an information war. Not about to be. We're in an information war with China. We'll see what General Spaulding says about that. He might actually take it a few steps further. It's time to wake up and smell the coffee, gang. Can't stop. we got to stop playing these games. Um, get smart. So last thing here real quick. What is a take rate? Take rate is the revenue considered revenue that a marketplace or a platform business earns off of a transaction. So there's GMV, gross merchandise volume or value. So if you have a sale on, let's say, eBay or Amazon Marketplace, that's considered GMV. Hey, I sold this product for 10 bucks. If your take rate is 10%, the revenue to the marketplace is $1, 10% of $10. So the take rate is effectively a function of Calculating the revenue for a marketplace business. Take rate times GMV equals revenue. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I will talk to you soon.